when I look at some of the opportunities in our country right now is that people come here that are, when they're first to America, whether they're a refugee, they're fleeing something um, where they had to leave their home versus yep. someone coming who's an immigrant who is leaving a situation for a better opportunity. In either case, welcoming them in, letting them know that we have a job for them at Tzatziki's and because we really see the value in diversity. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and as always, we're bringing you the stories of people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. My guest today is Dan Simpson, the CEO of Tzatziki's and an all-around badass, damn-giving human. For those of you who don't know what Tzatziki's is, by the end of this episode, you're going to wish you had one nearby, I promise. It's amazing, fast-casual Mediterranean food. 92 locations in a dozen or so states so far, and they're growing like crazy, over 2,000 employees. In our chat, we talk about caring for the environment, fresh food, the importance of fostering community over meals, their HOPE program, which is amazing by the way, and the ways in which they are giving a damn by hiring veterans, refugees, and other often marginalized groups of people. You're going to love this chat, my friends. Dan is an entirely delightful and passionate human. Before we begin, a shout out to our sponsor. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by The Russell. The Russell is a historic East Nashville church transformed into a one-of-a-kind boutique hotel. The Russell's mission is to give back to the Nashville community through their Rooms for Rooms program by donating a portion of your stay to local organizations who provide a safe haven for those in need in the Nashville community. It's an absolutely beautiful hotel with an incredible mission. If you're ever in the Nashville area, consider staying there. Visit russellnashville.com to book your experience today. Okay, ready friends? Here's my conversation with the CEO of Tzatziki's, Dan Simpson. Dan Simpson, what's up? Man, it's great. We just met and loving the conversation we're already having. Great to be here. Yes, so excited for you to be here. Um, we have known each other for a whole week now. We go way back. But it's been it's been a wonderful week. We had lunch last week. Really, I think, hit it off, connected on a bunch of different levels. Uh, we have similar stories in so many ways. Uh, we're similar. We are the same Enneagram number. We are, yeah, we are, we are very similar, even though we've taken little bit of a different career path. I'm excited to learn more about your work today because I know a little bit, but these people don't know. And I think there's, your story is compelling. The work that you're doing is compelling, but I also think that we can learn from your business experience as well, which is something that I think a lot of people in the give a damn space, whether it's nonprofit work or volunteering or whatever, we don't have a good business mind going into it. We make bad decisions. Um, we don't, prioritize how to do things. And then we're, then we're too stressed out because there's not enough money to go around and there's not enough this and there's not enough that. I spent 13 years in the nonprofit world and it was beg, borrow and steal the whole time. I mean, I wasn't, these weren't my organizations. I helped run organizations, but I, that was partly my responsibility to come up with the funds to budget properly. And it was literally beg, borrow and steal for over a decade. Partly why I left. Cause I was like, there's gotta be a better way. I got to learn. Right. What's the better way? So that's like, what's the no margin, no mission. So yeah, it's been, oh, yeah. it's been fun to figure out how do you take a big heart and intentional life and then layer on sustainability, layer on a way to sort of like propel it forward. And so, yeah, I've, I've 
we'll talk about it, but sort of navigated my life and career so far to figure out how do I find the balance between those different themes, those different priorities. Remember that friends, no margin, no mission. That's, I mean, that's, that's the whole ball game right there. It really is. Um, So you are, before we get into the work that you're doing, let's begin with finding out who you are. Who are you? Uh, Whatever I say when I say that, like (laughs) talk about it. That could be your people, your place, your work, where you came from, where you're going. Who are you? Yeah. So I think immediately about like the genesis of the story, born in Philadelphia, still a big Eagles fan. That, that, was a is that disappointing? Yeah, well, last night it was. <laughs> yes, it was. I saw the tweets during the Emmys. It was Emmys tweets, and it was Eagles fans. Oh, they're, they're, you know, my kids were freaking out, not in a good way. Um, but it's, you know, it's such a place of belonging, and there's so many memories. And you ride, you know, when you're a fan, you ride with the ups and the downs. And yep. you know, winning the Super Bowl was an amazing experience. So yeah, sometimes you got some losses, and it was a fun game. But so yeah, um, being born in Philly and such a stigma about these like you know negative Philly fans. But man, this is a city of brotherly love. That's the sector of the city I come from. Apparently. I love Philly. Yeah, I love Philly. Beautiful really town, do. Parisian layout. But yeah, there's a lot of passion there. So that's that's kind of the Philly I hail from. Um, but grew up in Maine. Um, and it's interesting because I think like you know my mom's a nurse, my dad was a cop, and they sort of like fled to find a better life. And we found 40 acres and grew up on an apple orchard and. Wow. My, my parents tried their hands at uh, all kinds of farming and so had this sort of ag farming sort of background. But also like living in Maine is like it's a beautiful place, but it's like a it's a gritty place. Like you mm. you, you work hard. It's hard winters, you know, firewood, um, as I mentioned, gardens. So like I came out of my childhood definitely with this sort of like, I don't know, this balance of like, all right, I'm from this sort of inner city Philly and I'm also from this nowhere Maine um kind of gritty background before I jumped off into college. Um, and some parts and pieces of that, plus my mom's big heart as a nurse, those are sort of like the early formative pieces that sort of like sent me into the world. Did you go to the big city right after that? Or like, yeah, did you want to like get away from rural living yeah. or n- no more farming for me? Or what was kind of, yeah, what were you working through? Yeah, there? so I wanted to I wanted to spread my wings and get away. It's the middle of five kids. So also like we all play this role in our family of origin, our birth order, et cetera. And so for me, it was, hey, I kept everybody together. Um, I got to sort of lighten the mood. Um, I sort of helped navigate through this childhood experience of my parents trying to figure out their own mm. selves and their own marriage. And that wasn't going so well and ended up in divorce. And so like I was already picking up on a lot of those challenges early on and trying to keep this be as fun as experience. But inside, I was ready at you know 17 to, I wanted to get out. I think the other thing too is one of the charming things about rural places and, and true of Maine is you, when it's a hard environment, you stick together. Mm. And so people, you know, you get your car stuck in a ditch and someone comes and pulls you out. Um, that sort of togetherness living all the time uh, makes people also kind of closed. And so like most of the the other people that I went to high school with like married each other and they stayed in those small towns. Yep. And yep. I, I was always like, hey, because of being born in Philly, I always knew the world was a big place and I wanted to go see this world. And so as far as I could, you know, see at that point was Clearwater, Florida. So I went to undergrad. I went far away from Maine. It was warm, not cold. It was beaches, not woods. And um, I wanted to go uh, kind of spread my wings and and see what the world looked like. 
take me on the journey between 17, 18, getting the hell out of Maine and now. So what, what, what did you, how did you yeah. decide what you wanted to work on, what you wanted to do? What was that sort of journey like? Yeah. So probably two different layers. So sure. one is like internal. The other one would be more professional. So the internal part is, um, I like most people went on this sort of introspective trying to figure out, you asked me before, like, who am I? Mm -hmm. I went on this in, introspective sort of journey. I think going from these three different geographical places was just sort of telling to help me sort of like see the world through different eyes and different cultures. I also, uh, my parents got divorced and that really kind of blew up one of the big institutions in my mind of sort of what I thought was, you know, what made the ground steady beneath my feet. Mm. And so when that eroded and um, I, it, you know, made me question, you know, everything from faith and politics and and direction for my life. And that was really hard. I also was doing it. I was pre-med biology major, a major that was not of my choosing, but my father's. So now here I am and I'm partway through a degree that I graduated with um, that wasn't even really necessarily me. And it turned out, it turned out really not me. And I was grateful because I learned so much and I'm a curious guy. So um, sure. that kept me going through it. But I, um, I was actually going to go to med school and I talked to a family doctor and he's like, you know what, you are creative and you are, mm. um, you are, you know, people centered. And he said, healthcare is a hard space to go into right now. So maybe, if you, maybe if you're going to do healthcare, you already have this degree, maybe go into the business side. So mm. I'd already been, I was playing in a band. So I had this creative side, grew up in a, my, my family is also pretty musical growing up. Um, everyone played piano and guitar and sang. Um, you guys and, have like a family band? Well, not yeah, quite? not quite the Partridge family, yeah. but like we'd sing in church and, yeah. um, we'd, we'd, you know, again, have a little campfire, sing little, along. Little, right, a little campfire, yeah. sing along. And, um, so that, so I had this like creative musical side and then I happened to have this biology degree, um, did a couple of health, was participated in a few healthcare startups when I was in college. And that was just, you know, minimum wage, pay some bills, pay my way through college at that point after my parents split up. Mm. And so I started to figure out like, okay, so really maybe I can use this creative um, part of me to do this sort of marketing business development is sort of the roles I ended up in just because those companies didn't have that. So the universe started to open up these sort of pathways for me like, okay, I can make some connections here. Since my family unit sort of split apart, I'm going to try to see if I can salvage that by reaching out to them individually and figure that out. But I'm also going to start seeking who start asking the question, like, who are my people? And um, I started to realize, like, I want to be with people that are not judgmental, mm, a little bit different sure. than what I grew up with. I want to be with people that are really curious and love to learn, have a growth mindset. I want to be with people that pay attention to their community around them and want to help and make a difference, that pay attention to sort of the least of these in their communities. Um, I also wanted to do things that were exciting and big. Like I definitely had a big dose of idealism. I wanted to change the world. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know how to do that because I was broke and coming from a broken mm -hmm. family. So a lot was broken. Didn't have any money making minimum wage, which, man, that was not a lot back then. Um, hasn't really changed that much in all these years. Wild. Yeah, crazy, right? And so I had a big heart and sort of big aspirations and didn't know where that was going to take me and playing in a band. Um, doing these startup companies, and then met who turned out to be my wife and uh, decided to move to the one place where healthcare and music was happening, which was Nashville, Tennessee. Um, that got me this far. And from there, it was a couple different, few more healthcare companies, really kind of leaned into healthcare, ended up sort of lucking out with this uh, one company called AIM Healthcare, 
where you had to start at the bottom and I was promoted very quickly, mostly because why? I asked a lot of questions. I was curious. I was Love ambitious. It. Happened to be the right time, right place. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing multi-million dollar deals, brokering them. I'm in the deep end of the pool. I really don't know what I'm doing other than I'd ask lots of questions, be curious and be ambitious. And it worked. Um, and so I was having a great time until something really important happened, which was I realized that I was missing something in my soul, mm. that I was making good money and I was finding like respect and utility, but I wasn't, I'd slipped a little bit away from mission in my work. And I had the insight of, I want to figure out a way to do meaningful work. If you get one life and you get agency, the volition to choose your life, I wanted to find a way to apply all my energy, and I have a lot of it still, um, and creativity towards something that felt like it mattered more. And so though grateful for the experience I had, grateful for the opportunities, but I jumped from there to go join a nonprofit for four years and called the Dispensary of Hope in Nashville. Hmm. And it was that was what it was all about for me. It was like, I'm going to leap into missional work. And I... I thought at the time that if it was a 501c3, if you had that particular tax sure. status, that that would, you know, you're moving out of the evil empire into the yep. world of good, yep. you know. And I learned for sure mm -hmm. along the way that there's, uh, it's not quite that simple. Uh, that's where I learned no margin, no mission. What years uh, were you in the nonprofit world for, those four years? Oh, let's see. This is going back to, this is probably about... Um, eight years ago, nine, nine, eight, eight to 10 years ago was so 11 to 15, yeah. 11 to 14 yeah. or something like that. You're yeah. there. Yeah. Talk about that transition. Cause you went from the business world, right? You're thinking, okay, this is evil. I needed to do something good with my life. Yeah. So let me leave that and go, obviously, well, I, I shouldn't say, obviously, I assume there was pay cuts and yes. you know, it was just a downsizing of life to be able to do this amazing mission. Right. Yeah. How long, how long did that last? How long did that sort of <laughs> Now I'm doing the good work. Now I'm doing right. the real work. Uh, be before you realized, well, well, for one, the nonprofit world is not so pure. Yeah. There are a lot of bad people running nonprofits, a lot of bad work being done, a lot of money, time, energy being wasted. And then you have, it's kind of like these smaller companies, these smaller organizations that aren't the big ones, aren't the ones that are raking in the dollars. And they're just, they're doing the great work. They're doing the awesome work. And they are just begging, borrowing, and stealing for everything that they have. And it's it's a weird world, right? So how long did that last before you're like, oh, this is also sort of messed up as well? Yeah, where the shiny object became a little less shiny. Yeah. Um, it probably took me about almost two years, honestly, because we started with this grand vision. And it was that this was you know pre the Affordable Care Act, pre Obamacare. And we were looking at a world, again, I'm coming from healthcare, so looking at a world where healthcare coverage is uh, really vacant in our country and we have more than 10 million people that are that are not covered and one of the byproducts of that was they also couldn't afford prescription drugs now hmm. again i grew up in this family where we we ate healthy and we worked hard and that you know and my mom's a nurse but like natural remedies are really preferred over medication for everything but the yep. reality is there's a lot of diseases that that a medication prescription drug is is the right answer or at least part of a of a larger care mm -hmm. um, solution and so looking at just people that just simply couldn't afford that 
was a real problem. So that's on one side. You have this like this big need and really a lack of hope because the the government couldn't get their act together and the private sector couldn't get their act together. So what are what are you going to do? On the other side, what we discovered was that the prescription drug, drug companies because of the way the FDA required them to produce drugs in batches, they would always end up with just a little bit extra that they knew would be more than what they could sell. Hmm. Their supply was greater than the demand. And what happened to that that extra? Well, by that time, it was being burned in incinerators because once it expired, they had to dispose of it in a safe way, although not a very environmentally good no, way. No. And if you look at it in the bigger picture, on one hand, you have all this waste and on the other hand, you have this need. So the premise of the company was that we would like 0% waste, 100% hope, is if you could connect these two things together. Now, that was a huge, ambitious goal. Yeah. It was just big enough to keep us all really engaged, a small group that came together from different sectors. And we had really an A-team having a lot of fun to figure this out. And so we it started to work. Um, it started by bringing in both brand and generic um, drug companies to the table and say, why don't you make a plan donation instead of waiting until it's close to expiration? On the flip side, a lot of what I spent my time on was building this network of dispensing sites. This would be charitable pharmacies and charitable clinics that were actually the, the last mile interacting with people in the mm. communities. So that, to your point, when I went out and started to do that work and I'm traveling to New Orleans and I'm traveling to Minneapolis and I'm traveling to... Um, all over, all over the country, I would go to these communities and bring together um, these people that were doing the same work but had never met together, or in some cases were warring sure. with each other. And it'd be it'd be a nun from the Catholic clinic on one corner, and it'd be the the hospital pharmacist on another corner, and it'd be the the uh, the Baptist church that had a little clinic in the basement of their church on this corner. And we would bring them all together. And what I found out quickly was they were territorial. They felt so passionate about their own personal calling and mission that this idea of collaborating to solve the problem together became a real barrier to achieving what we were trying to help them with. We said, basically, we could help you do this, but you guys need to come together to create one dispensing site for this to work. And I was dismayed by how, no, it's more important that we maintain our own separate missions that, by the way, are all dying on the vine, completely unsustainable, in many cases, not safe. But they felt so called to it that that was bigger than excellence or collaboration. And to me, you got to put the purpose and the why and the mission above everything, above your own person, above your own budget, you, you, you know, in that scenario, if you really want to focus on it. And so I ended up, you know, playing this Henry Kissinger role of trying to bring people together <laughs> yeah. and leveraging diplomacy to help them achieve, see that right now you help 100 people. If you guys join forces, this is like 10x. And so when you look at that, look what you could do together. Um, so I learned a lot about the power of collaboration. In some cities, we pulled it off. In other cities, they were just too entrenched. So that was the part that really kind of blew my mind. I didn't expect it. And I just thought that they were so committed to mission. And in many cases, they were just you know, really committed to their own mission versus the mission with a capital T. So that was really eye-opening. I also learned in that experience, like you still have, no matter what you do, is similar challenges. You know, you got to have funding. Mm -hmm. And so we started by getting grants and we had some seed funding. And then we tried to figure out a sustainable model. So the idea of a social enterprise, what if you had a self-sustaining model where you charge a subscription? Well, that wasn't very well received. And because now you're charging money and does that go in alignment with your mission? 
great book, one of my favorites, Conscious Capitalism. Love it. Lays out this amazing way to look at um, how to do good in the world in a sustainable way. Yep. Right? Yep. And so that, I, I left there, you know, with my heart was just as full with how much good could be done and all these people that genuinely cared around the country. But the models and the frameworks in many cases were broken and really set up for people to compete with each other that should be allies. Um, I also learned, you know, things like there's a lot of bad processes. And though I didn't start as a technologist, in my healthcare companies, um, every time we ended up solving problem with technology, uh, we start in manual auditing or some other function and end up leveraging technology to make the process better. Even in the nonprofit in Dispensary of Hope, which you should check out online is today, it's thriving and and still That's serving awesome. people. That's awesome. I was going to ask if it's still going. Yeah, yeah, great. And some of my dearest friends um, just had uh, just had lunch with Scott Cornwell, who's their chief supply chain guy and, and great human being. And it's still it's still doing a lot of good in the world. But like we leaned into technology there because we realized in order to make this whole thing work and work efficiently, uh, we weren't just going to say, you know, well, do our best and let God do the rest. We weren't going to just say, this is a bad process because it's a great mission. No, that's a terrible way of thinking. How do we bring excellence to this work that we wanted to do? So we leaned a lot in technology. So between those different experiences, I ended up really seeing how technology is not an end into itself, but really great tool to, to solve real problems, which led to my my eventual exit from the dispensary of hope and going to launch a technology company. Before we get to that, yeah. I, I I love that point you just made regarding technology. I've been thinking a lot about that idea the last few days because I just finished the uh, the three part uh, Bill Gates uh, Netflix On thing. Netflix. I just saw that. I haven't seen it yet, but I just I noticed it the other day. I won't say anything because I'll no, say one thing. Spoiler alert. I'll say one thing <laughs> only because he's he has said this many times. But in it, the interviewer asks him like, "Are you? Do you think?" Essentially, the question was, "Do you think?" we can solve everything. Like, do you think mm. technology can solve everything? And he's like, his answer was essentially, again, paraphrased, I could be wrong, but I do believe that. And that's the that's the first question I'm going to ask when I face any question, when I face any issue, yeah. is can technology fix this? And we're in a beautiful time in history. Well, the first time in history, but it's beautiful that we can leverage uh, these amazing tools. Uh, we can leverage uh, technology to fix some things that we've been haven't been able to fix in the past, and that we haven't been able to address. So, what was the transition then? Uh, you're you're realizing this about technology, and what was the transition? Was it a good exit out of there and yes. into this new thing? And, and and what was this new thing that you were yeah, doing? And, was, and I assume that's pre. That's like right before Tzatziki's, right? Yeah, that's okay. right. So, um, yeah, it was. It it, it felt abrupt. I think to me and and to many others too, because it was like, wait a minute, you just you had this series of healthcare startups, and then sort of found your way into this big healthcare company, and we really kind kind of made it, and and then you, you you jump off this cliff and go to the startup for four years that's in in healthcare, but in the pharmaceutical side, you end up doing you know a lot of technology, and and then jumped to you know this technology company. So like it's oftentimes that you can understand your life a little bit better if you're standing on the other side and look back and look yeah. for that common thread. And yep. for me, everything I had done to that point, again, really stems back to life is about people. And I really, really, really wanted to stay a person who had and was developing a more and more open heart that mm. was doing good in the world in a small way. Uh, I, I don't mean small, I mean in a close proximity way, but also, if possible, in a larger proximity way. And so my heart has always been chasing those opportunities. And then 
I think as I got into it, I realized, again, the sustainability that if you're going to do it, do it with excellence and do it in a way that it can last. And that requires it to be financially stable. Mm -hmm. So the tax exempt doesn't make something good and for-profit doesn't make it bad. That's really about your own heart that you bring into your work. What is your intention in your work? If profit is your only motivation instead of profit being an outcome, like mm -hmm. conscious capitalism mm -hmm. talks about, like make make your why, your purpose. That's the driver, the thing that pushes you to get up every day and do your thing. And profit is one of the outcomes um, that you get to create. And so, and then I think my pragmatic side kicked in along the way because I realized like, this is the whole, I love not only ideas, but also love making things better. So process improvement and the technology became a way to facilitate doing these bigger things. And so I think I was just sort of like taking some stepping stones, building some tools in my toolbox that all matter and sort of have led me to what I'm doing now. And I felt freedom for some reason to not like go get a career job and stay at this one company because that's the way I'm going to get a good pension, you know, but more like Life is a series of adventures and look at these stepping stones and like get into one because, and it will teach you the people you don't want to work with. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. the next time you get to choose, you'll say, I'll be more choosy about, I really am most alive when I work with these kinds of people. Um, and do, do one because it gives you a chance to live deeply out of your heart and do the next one because it grounds you deeply in finance and business. And so for me, it's been a series of things that all have sort of been collecting a toolbox and doing some good along the way, but learning lessons along every step of the way. So jumping into tech, into a technology company, you know, we, we started with a variety of different ideas, but this was with like some of my closest friends. This was very much the step on my path of, I want to choose who I do my work with, not actually what it is, but who it is. So I love the people I was working with. Um, technology was something, again, that I was evolving into and really wanted to lean into. And then we had some other grand ideas. We wanted to advance health and nutrition with some of our past healthcare contacts uh, through a rewards program. And what I learned very quickly was, as it imploded, was that <laughs> that just because your heart intent is right and because there is a real opportunity, it may not work. It may be too early. It might be too late. And so then you have to be pragmatic and pivot. And so you know, five pivots later, we end up with to-go technologies with it, which is using this technology platform we built that went from nutrition to grocery stores to food trucks to you name it, we did it, and ended up building a mobile ordering app for restaurants. Again, this was never in the master plan and certainly not on my bucket list, but yeah. sort of where we landed to be good stewards of the money we raised um, and being a co-founder and CEO of a what ended up being, again, a, a mobile app company for restaurants. And that was my my unexpected foray into the hospitality restaurant space. Is that company still going? Yeah, it's okay. going and thriving. Uh, my friend Sean Shankle is the CEO. Um, he was one of the guys that we, we built the company with. And, um, and that was really my bridge into, you know, in Nashville, met Mike Bodner, who is a restaurant veteran and... And he ended up, you know, I I, he ended up teaching me a lot. And I love the way he did business. Again, going to restaurants wasn't on my, on my, you know, my bucket list. But when I looked at the way he did business and, and you know, a little about him is he worked with Dave Thomas at Wendy's for years. Sure. Uh, he built technology, some of the first technology in restaurants. Again, a process improver. So he and I were kindred in that way. And he also not only had big visions, like he says, never does anything, one of anything, always does things big, hmm. but also had this unexpected surprise and delight about him because though he 
was wealthy and was building this empire. He could have built it all for himself, but along the way, he kept saying, I don't want to hire employees. I want to have partners. And so he would make people equity holders and owners of the different restaurant groups and restaurants. He would basically take some of his, what could have been only his wealth, and he, when people invested into the business, he would invest back in them and give them the opportunity to, to be an owner. And I didn't see that generosity in most other businesses, period, let alone in the restaurant space. And I knew they didn't have to do this. Mm. And so I knew he wanted to do it out of some part of his heart that recognized it was paying it forward. It was, he knew he was changing people's lives. And I love that about him, still do. And I realized, okay, there is an amazing capacity to do good in the hospitality space. First and foremost is that every day you get to create a plate of food and you get to present it to someone and either bring people together, lighten their mood, lighten their moment, brighten their day. And then there's a secondary part is you get to you get to change people's lives by the people you hire. Yep. And so I realized, man, there's a lot of opportunities here, particularly because the restaurant space was ripe for technology innovation and needed it needed innovation creativity, which was something that I, I love doing. And there was this potential for it to have great heart. And so I realized suddenly I kind of felt at home there. Um, and so ended up going to work with Mike. Let's uh, talk about what you just said about food, hospitality. Then we'll get into this into tzatzikis. I, I love cooking. I'm pretty damn good at it, actually, <laughs> I think. Um, my family thinks so. The people that we throw parties for think so. I, most it's days- It's Everybody thinks you're good at cooking. This is good. <laughs> most days. I really am. You know, it's so funny. Like, there's nights that I'm one of 12 kids, and I was the one that was, I'm the second oldest, so I had a lot of responsibility anyway. Um, but my mom obviously had to come up with feasts every day to feed sure. 12 growing kids. And I was the one kid- even at you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, I was interested. I would go in there and help her. And then it got to the point when I was 13 or 14 that I would, she would say, you just want to do the whole thing because you're kind of taking over anyway. I'm a, I'm a fairly strong personality, and she's amazing and kind and virtually sinless, uh, which means she just like, didn't want to, you know, would, she just let me kind of sure. mow her over with my direction and the thing that I wanted to do. And so then I was cooking full meals. And so, you know, there's days when we have like, uh, We'll have game nights at our house, right? And they'll last until 12, 1, 2 in the morning. You know, we're, we're four bowls of hookah into the night and, you know, drinks scattered all around. And then it's just like Monopoly. What are we playing here? We're what's talking our, our uh, Settlers of Catan, oh, um, Carcassonne. Uh, and you can get, different. I know, we can get lost in our family for hours doing that too. Yeah. 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 We're just all of a sudden it's like, oh, and then everybody gets their fourth meal, right? Their Taco Bell fourth meal on. And so then it's like, Nick, will you go make us some food? And so I'll go into the kitchen at two in the morning, cook up another feast for everybody. I just love it. So I, I love cooking food. And what's so special about it is that. It, it, Everybody, people you agree with, people you disagree with, people you like, people you don't like, everybody, everybody needs to eat. Right. And everybody wants to eat well. They love good food. They know what it tastes like, even though most people, I think, settle for sort of mediocre food. I think if you put something, if the same person that eats out at, you know, whatever, eats hamburgers every day, if you serve them a really great meal, um, something from tzatziki's, you know, a great whatever vegetable euro, they're going to notice the quality. They're going to notice something different, right? And so food's super important. Um, wh when did you develop? Was it during this time or was there were there previous times in your life when you had really seen the importance of, uh, whether it was in your family, you and your wife, whatever, like seeing the importance of food, uh, bringing people together for meals, just yeah. the importance of serving quality food. Yeah. Yeah, great question. I think there's a combination of things. Some things that maybe I didn't even pay attention to until later as I reflected back on this. But sure. So like 
my grandfather is uh, was a was a was a chef, a cook in the Navy, and then became a chef in the Philadelphia area. And I remember the few memories I have of him before he passed on was him you know, raking and, and me, little Danny, holding on to little rake in the Pocono Mountains where he retired to, and him always having big gardens. And then I remember, I remember my grandmother, every time we'd go visit them uh, in the Poconos, she, you know, everything is scratch made pies and, and um, food from their garden. It was just sort of a given. It wasn't novelty. It wasn't a trend. Uh, it wasn't cool. It was just, of course, what you did. Then yep. again, growing up in Maine, now this is more out of necessity. Five kids and we're living in rural Maine. My mom's working full time and we're, we're living off the land. And so we had ever increasing gardens, which meant lots of work uh, for us as kids. And um, but we 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 canned and we we ate from um, from our garden year round, and so to me it was just it was sort of part of what the earth is for. It you you invest some time in it, you take mm-hmm. care of that soil, and it gives you back year over year over year um, sustenance for your life, and not just sustenance but flavor, right? Um, except that really bad patch of pickles that my dad made. Which <laughs> a totally different story. Um, Sometimes it can go bad. Yeah, right. Um, but so, and then, you know, cut to I get married and my wife, Kim, and she is, you know, whatever my sort of baseline of paying attention to, you know, how we take care of the earth and plants and animals and how then that combines into sustenance for us and how that turns into a meal. Um, she took it to the next level and, and now we have raised bed boxes in our backyard and we teach our kids about, about gardening. We, we harvest from there year round. So hoop house, um, for, for lettuces throughout the year wow. and, um, and then composting and, you know, that lends itself into recycling and all of this is very connected about, again, it's a lot about if you don't take care of the soil, the soil will not take care of you. And so mm. you really got to pay attention to the depletion of nutrients from soil. And so try to, try to, you know, you can see the whole life cycle just in our little, you know, Nashville, uh, city house and backyard, you can still see all that happens on, on a big farm. Um, what an amazing, I'm sure, did you see that documentary, the biggest little farm? Uh, no. Oh my goodness. It's amazing. You should, everyone, I, everyone listening should go watch on Netflix. Is it on Netflix? Okay. Yeah. The biggest little farm. And it's, it's really, it's, you know, amazing cinematography as you would expect. Um, but a beautiful story and you will learn so much about agriculture and just about, um, our connection to it. It's a really amazing, uh, a narrative to pay yeah, attention I'm to. Yeah, I'm in. So like from that, uh, my wife, I marry into this family where her, my mother-in-law, then my wife, um, uh, by her own marriage, like amazing cook, so curious about, and so I eat so well, right? Mm-hmm. I, like you, I'm probably I'm much more of the sous chef. I, I can chop with the best of them, and I'm eager and and uh, happy to help. So I'll pour a glass of wine for my wife, and she's usually leading the way. Yep. Uh, I'm cooking like one time a week, but, yep. but we all, all, my kids, all, yep. we all love to cook. It's so a family gardening, affair. cooking, it's all kind of goes together. Um, I think for me, it's it's more than even the culinary part. It's again, it really goes back to this idea of, I think since I was a little boy, I've always paid attention to everybody wants to be loved and doesn't quite have enough. Everybody's a little bit lonely and everybody's now busy and distracted. So even our pathways to connect with each other are sort of muted and numbed and you can go a lot of days and a lot of weeks and not have real connection to another human being. And what I saw was the best moments were when we 
could slow down long enough to say, hey, man, you want to grab a cup of coffee? Because mm. those moments interrupt the otherwise the pace of life. Mm-hmm. And then you sit down and you end up being eyeball to eyeball with another person. And you have surface conversation, which sometimes leads into where you really are, how you really feel, what's really going on. And sometimes if it's a trusted friend and this is the third or fourth or fifth coffee, or you and I have just second time, yep. then you can go deep with some people and you can form a real deep connection. It's amazing how often that happens because, or at least aided by the fact that there's a beverage shared, there's a plate of food, an appetizer, there's two beers and and some wings or some nachos, there's some hummus, right? There is this currency of food that allows us to sit down, slow down, and actually start to connect with each other. And when I started to uh, talk uh, to restaurant doors and realized mm-hmm. that at the heart of most of them that I was talking to, that they were paying attention, not just running a business and being mm-hmm. an entrepreneur, their own dream or own their own business. And they weren't just paying attention to this particular mixture of ingredients. Um, but they also had this attentiveness that I had this whole time, which was, Hey, food brings people together at its best. Food brings people together. There are a few things, you know, you can go to a concert. I love to go to concerts, take me to Bonnaroo. I love to see how one band can bring 80,000 people together and we can all sing along and all jump at the same Wild. time. It's amazing, yeah. right? I, it's, some people hate crowds, put me right in the I middle of a crowd and yep. I love it. And I think what I love is that shared experience that transcends all of our differences because yep. they don't matter because yep. all that matters is we all know the words and we're all jumping and we're ecstatic for the shared yep. experience. That is amazing yep. in a world that's disconnected. And so music does that. Sometimes sports, at least for the team you're cheering for, yep. can do that when you're yep. all together in the stadium. When my Eagles won the Super Bowl and I'm standing there with tears coming down my face because I can't. Everybody's your best friend. I, yeah, Everybody's your people. We're all hugging yep. and there's champagne. And my buddy Jimmy from, from Philly's there. And we're just having, right? You have this shared experience that transcends anything that might be different about you. That's magical. Well, food is one of those things that you can cross borders and language. It doesn't matter religion. Mm-hmm. All it's. I think it's maybe the purest thing that you can put on a table to bring people together that despite whatever their differences are, it can be a uniting factor. Yeah. Um, it's also just soothing. It's yep. also amazing when you're not feeling great to have a bowl of soup and how much, what a kind gesture that is to another person. So I think there's so much opportunity to not just, to, to sh- bring intention into food. Intention to your point, which is, I chose to make it from scratch. I chose to yep. do it with ingredients that bring the most flavor and nutrition and the intentionality of, I actually made this with love. 100%. Because I actually want you to walk out of here feeling more lifted and light and full, dare I say, loved before you leave. And when you bring that kind of intentionality to your work, it does good things to you and yep. to the world around you. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny if you're, you know, if you're, if you're cooking up, uh, fish sticks and mac and cheese every night <laughs> for your family. Like on the one hand, you are feeling your bellies. Like yeah. you might be grumpy and then you have the food and then you're not grumpy because you're sure. into food. But <clears throat> I mean, your kids can't ask you, Hey, what's, what, how did you make this? Like, what did you do right. other than pop it in the oven where, you know, when I make a home cooked meal for my kids, they can ask, you know, last night we, I uh, roasted some vegetables uh, and we usually do, we're kind of big coconut oil fans, but I switched and did some olive oil and she tasted it and we and she even said like hey you used olive oil tonight and that's a weird thing because we kind of we love we use coconut oil for everything and that can't happen if you're not putting that intention in that like love into the food that you're making right i had this wild you know you're talking about all these differences and how they disappear around food 
I've had this vision about how, you know, I can get just like the, the best of them. I can get caught up in these like Twitter, you know, conversations about this, that, and the other with people that I don't agree with. And I have grown a lot, uh, but I still am not, I'm not, uh, the best. I still get in fights and arguments and I shouldn't be. And I, you know, I have this, I've literally had this vision before in my head where we just build the biggest fucking table you've ever seen all the way across the United States and everybody sits down, you know, your political, and I'm using air quotes, political opponent across from you, right? On the one side, it's all the people that you think you disagree with. Line the table up with the best food there is. I guarantee you the political climate would change overnight. Love it. It can't be the same. After you have that meal and you realize that Joe Smith, the buddy that you think you don't like because he voted this way or does this thing or carry, you know, sh- shoots animals and you're a vegetarian, like after you have a meal and you talk about your kids and school and sports and, you know, the neighbor's dog that keeps crapping in your yard, like when you start having those conversations, you talk about like, oh, you know, we, we went on vacation here. Oh, we went to vacation there. You know, everything, not, it doesn't go away. You still have these differences. We don't act like they don't exist anymore. Sure. But the discourse fundamentally yeah. changes after you have that meal so maybe, with the person that you instead think. Instead of building a wall, we should build a community the big, table. That have you seen this? East I'll West. send this to you. There's 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 an artist who his art installation was he did a table on both sides of the existing border fence, right? It's not a wall, but the border fence. So he built it on both sides. And on the one side, there were Mexicans that sat down and they did like a potluck. And on the on the other side, Americans, right? So it looks like if you take do like an aerial shot, it's them having this meal <laughs> at a big long table, fifty feet long. That's awesome. And, but they're on, but they're you know they're they're uh, separated by this fence, right? Right. But that's still a beautiful picture of like yeah. what would it be, what could it be yeah. if we just took down this fence. And now we're all mingling with each other because we're all humans at the end of the day. Okay, we are 47 minutes in. We are getting to Tzatziki's now. Because I want to talk about um, two years ago, two-ish years ago, you became the CEO of Tzatziki's, right? Correct. Okay. Tzatziki's, I love Tzatziki's. I didn't know about it until, because we're not from uh, the South. We moved here two years ago. My first Tzatziki's experience was here in Nashville, uh, the one in the Gulch. Right. And uh, loved it. I mean, I'm a huge diehard Mediterranean food fan. It's really good actually for, we're vegetarian. We've been for five, six years, almost vegan, but can't quite get there just yet with, you know, just little kids and cheese, occasional cheese and all that stuff. But, but Mediterranean food is always vegan, vegetarian friendly. So I was having a meeting in the Gulch, went there, loved it and have been going back ever since. And, um, so tell me about Tzatziki's, uh, almost hundred locations, 17 states. This is a big thing. Until you and I, or actually until I met with Amy, uh, one of your teammates uh, a couple weeks ago, I thought it was like a Nashville establishment. I just hadn't looked into it as much. I was just enjoying the food and I'd never seen it anywhere else. I was like, oh, this is like a Nashville thing. And I thought maybe a a dozen locations or whatever. And then she said, no, 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 no. We're everywhere and we're growing and it's amazing. And I got more into the business talk with her. And so tell us about yeah. this fast casual Mediterranean cafe. How did you get to become a part of it, the CEO, not just a part of it, but like you're kind of running running the whole thing. Um, yeah, tell me about it, tell us about it. Yeah, that, you did a great job already, great commercial. Perfect. Um, yeah. I said, I, I do that sometimes. I'm like, tell me about it, and then I start talking about it. <laughs> no, uh, but good. whenever I left, please Take you on the talk road. to us That's about good. it. I'm in. Um, 
Yeah, so, I mean, the story really starts, Keith and Amy Richards live in Birmingham, Alabama, and they took a trip to Greece in 1997, and it was a romantic getaway, and while there, they stumble upon this cafe a few nights into their vacation, and they're welcomed in by this couple who, you know, welcome them like family, three hours go past, they've had this amazing, colorful food, Mediterranean food is very colorful, fresh, very plant-based, and, you know, glass of wine, but more than that is how they feel they feel connected and to each other and to the people in the restaurant and they walk out like that was amazing. Well, they loved it so much. They went back to the same place every night for the rest of their vacation on the flight back to the States. They said, I don't know exactly how to describe what just happened, but that's what we want to do with yeah. the rest of our life. And they had wow. this clear sense of vocation to say, let's import the healthy food of the Mediterranean, but also the Mediterranean lifestyle. And maybe deeper than that was that connectivity, that human connection that they experienced. And they said, let's see if we can recreate that. So the first Ezekiel was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1998 at the Colonnade. And uh, like many other entrepreneurial stories, you know, the family pulls together 50 grand and yep. they- Friends they, and family around. Painting yep. and, and they open this little tiny restaurant and it boom, takes off. Called Ezekiel from day one. Yeah, called Ezekiel. And it worked because of the same ingredients, right? It was the healthy, fresh, colorful food made from scratch every day, um, really intentional ingredients. And then, but it also worked because Keith and Amy emulated that sort of Greek man and woman at the door um, that welcomed them in in Greece. They did the same thing. They were involved in the in the community, in the local, you know, churches and schools and firehouses and police stations and the local businesses. They were involved in their community and they set tzatzikis as a table for the community to come together around. In fact, every tzatzikis from the beginning has a community table that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and it's intended to say, come sit next to strangers, sit next to someone with a different religion or a different, a different accent than you, someone that goes to a different school or a different church and have have communion with each other around this uh, this bread and this and this hummus, and see what happens in the community when we gather around food. So they did that, and uh, cut to years later, uh, one of their customers ended up being the son of Mike Bodner that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. and and they were at the time starting to help young restaurateurs along the way. And so this group, Fresh Hospitality, um, which is, again, this incubator for, for young restaurateurs, ended up making an investment in helping Keith and Amy Richards with their restaurant. So fast forward a bunch of years, they start to add some tzatzikis in, uh, around the country in different places, again, kind of friends and family, and make the decision that, hey, let's empower other entrepreneurs to bring the Mediterranean, the taste of the Mediterranean to their communities. So adopted this idea of local ownership, um, AKA a franchise model, if you're scared of it or don't like it, it's empowering someone who has a dream yeah. of running their own restaurant with basically the recipes and the support to do it. And that's at our best what we do. We empower people to launch a dream of bringing this flavor to the to Small businesses food. fall flat on their face every single day. Yeah. And franchise businesses overwhelmingly succeed. Yeah. Because it somebody is a proven 100%. Yeah. yeah. So, and we, and we fundamentally, the reason I said about the Greek man and woman at the door, we fundamentally believe in that locally owned and operated model that versus us operating the, them from mm -hmm. afar. Um, and it's, it's just central to who we are. Um, the other thing is really key is that from the beginning, Keith is, and I would say a big hearted foodie, great in the kitchen. But the thing I love about Keith the most is his big heart. So, you know, if there was a fire, he realized 
you know, at, at not that much cost, he could put together some signature pasta and bring it and bring some comfort to the family that lost or the fire firefighters that bravely mm. ran into the fire. And either way, there was a way to be a part of that experience and serve them, serve the community in that way. Also, when approached with this opportunity, realize there's members of every community that get left out. And one of those members are special needs youth. They're often ostracized and um, not very employable. They have limited opportunities. And so they created this amazing program called HOPE, which is Herbs Offering Personal Enrichment. Mm, and this idea it. is how about we, we help them with the seeding, watering, harvesting of herbs that we use in our restaurants. We buy them from them so they have a job. And we use the herbs in our restaurant. Um, and so we're still, we've, we have this program uh, across Tzatziki's today. And our goal has been to hire at least one special needs um, person in every one of our restaurants. And we would put that challenge out to all restaurants. Yeah. There's about maybe a million restaurant establishments if you add them all up. What if every restaurateur hired one special needs youth, gave them an opportunity to work? They will bring so much joy and love uh, into your restaurant experience yep. for your staff and for your guests, it and it would give them a job. Um, so we're really passionate about that being part of what we do. So anyway, I, as I mentioned before, I, I, I my foray into this is going from technology. Ended up building the technology that uh, Fresh Hospitality and Tzatziki's adopted. Um, I'm then in, I worked a little bit in the Fresh Hospitality space and kind of doing the Shark Tank of finding the new restaurateurs. Um, became a Tzatziki's franchisee was the next step of my journey. Oh, wow. I didn't know and, that. Yeah. And so that's when I really got to know Keith and the rest of the Tzatziki's family. And then the board invited me to become the chief innovation officer. And the, and the key there was the brand was about to turn 20. The founder, Keith, is still very involved with the culinary side and the heart of the brand. But they really wanted to formulate how do we innovate this brand to stay relevant for the next 20 years? Well, I've been a startup guy and an entrepreneur and been involved in all these things, been working in technology, share a big heart with Keith. So we came together and formed a team and said, let's go work on this. And so we worked on, uh, you know, a cultural renewal, really looking at who are we as a brand? Mm. What are the things that we want to be? Uh, who are the kind of people we want to hire uh, to live this out? Brand refresh, a new store design uh, that is a little younger and brighter, new technology um, and then started working on a five-year plan. And then the board surprised me when they said, we found it. We found our, uh, our CEO of the future. I said, great, can't wait to meet him. And they said, it's you. <laughs> and they invited me to stick around and ex help execute this plan that we had formulated together. Wow. That, that had to have been a very surprising turn of events because you signed on for, you know, first franchisee, then CIO. Yep. And then they wanted to give you the big gig. Yeah. That's amazing. So how have you, a couple questions about Tzatziki's. Um, it's, it's a very intentional place. The food is prepped daily before the restaurant opens. Everything's cut. Everything's, you know, all, all the vegetables are cut and diced. Everything's prepared. You know, you're not taking out frozen bags from the freezer. The, the kind of Burger King franchise model where everything's frozen, there's a, everything just makes sense for like, you, you know, you... You don't have to be, I think, that accomplished of a person, like figure out that system, right? And we also know, I think some of the, re you alluded to it earlier, like some of the reason that I think people look down on a franchise model is because you walk into one subway and it's like tip top shape. And then you walk into another one and you're like, holy shit, like I can't eat in here. Like they should fail, you know? Uh, so how do you 
keep that from happening because I've been in several tzatzikis now. Everything is excellent. The the people that serve me food, the food, everything is. And you know, I imagine that's happening in ninety two locations or ninety three, however many restaurants there. How do you keep that yeah. across all of your restaurants across all? Because these are operators that maybe in this for the money, maybe in this to create another amazing restaurant. I don't know. How do you, how do you do that? Yeah. So first thing starts with finding the right partners. And so along the way, it's recognizing that every new franchisee is really a partner that we're going to have for many, many years into the future. So finding people that really align with our brand values first before our business model. And, yeah. and so that's, that's the key thing. Um, and then after that, it's, it's, yeah, use some of the technology and systems to put in place. So for instance, like, all of our recipes, which are perfected by Keith and Raul, his team on the culinary R&D side, those are all then digitized into digital recipe screens. And so every day, not only are we starting with uh, raw materials, vegetables, produce, uh, leg of lamb, et cetera, we're then following these recipes to a spec. And so therefore it's being executed the same way in every single restaurant. And so we say kind of live by the checklist, die by the checklist. The way you achieve excellence is through habit. And we, we make it habit easy by making it very, uh, very orderly and systematizing those. So that's how you, you take essentially what was in Keith's, the founder's sort of head and heart, and then how do you make that into a system, right? So that's the idea. You don't have to have uh, a Keith in every single market, in every single city. What you need to have is that people that have share the same values and they're disciplined to follow the Tzatziki's way. And then we give them systems so it's easy to follow the Tzatziki's way. So that's that's how you create standardization and maintain your excellence. And I would say, you know, a few things to give a damn about that are worth giving a damn about. You know, one of them is supply chain. Um, not a real sexy word, but something, one of the things I'm really excited about now because We've been on a campaign that's really emphasizing the farmers behind our food. So yeah. I can tell you it's all made from scratch. What does that mean? And Panera can say it's all clean. You know, but what are, what are we talking about here? Yep. Yep. What, what it means is that it all starts with their, with the farmers that are in the field or the bakers or um, whether our lamb farmers, the Dane, one of the Dane family in central Michigan or the dairy farmers in Monroe County in Wisconsin. The, the, we've been in the last year going out to meet them, invite them in to speak at our conference and tell their stories. These are people that this is what they, what their passion is. And they're sometimes invisible. We went to go visit them. Yep. And a lot of times they're, they're moved deeply, tears in their eyes because they've never met the last mile. They've never seen where yep. the sweat of their brow goes. And so we've tra been trying to honor who are these farmers. I think you're going to see uh, transparency traceability in the upcoming years just increased dramatically. We're going to be able to know, you know, this, this salmon at tzatziki's on top of our med salad, which is amazing. Um, if you haven't had Mediterranean salad with salmon, you're really missing out on one of the best things you could ever eat. But like knowing that it was caught here by this fisherman and let's honor the place and the person. Mm. Um, and so, you know, our, our, our baker for our pita, Naji, one of the, one of the most big hearted people you'll ever meet in your life. Um, he's from the Mediterranean he's Lebanese and in, he's not just baking bread for a profit for us. He is, he would say, you know, breaking bread is sacred and he puts that intention into every piece of pita that he bakes for us. Mm. And so that, that's the origination of before it even comes to us. So I think paying attention to supply chain, where everything you put on your table that you put in your body, where does it come from? Ask your kids that question. Start paying attention when you're shopping. Um, at Publix or Whole Foods or wherever, and look at the ingredients, but also the origin, because that's really that's an important thing to pay, to give a damn about, to pay attention to, uh, and start then 
honoring is not just an academic process, but honor those people. When you recognize, when you drive by uh, a field full of corn, recognize there's a family living there. And you know what? You think it's some big operation. It's probably a mom and dad and their two yep, kids yep. and one one helping hand. It's These are tiny operations that do a tremendous amount of work. Honor the work they do um, and how much it, it brings the harvest to our tables. And then for us, it's, yeah, then we want to honor the people that are in our restaurant that take all that. We could do it much easier. We could cut a lot of corners. We could do it processed. We could save a lot on labor Yep. Yep. and help our bottom line. But we have really held to this, you know, ethos of, of real food. So I think give a damn about re- the real food movement. When I, I don't worry about our quote unquote competitors, more air quotes, um, when they too are holding to the ethic of starting mm-hmm. with real ingredients and then making food from scratch. It's not trendy. It's not that it's cool. It's not modern. It's actually old fashioned. It's just the way we should make food. It's the right thing to do. It's just the right thing to do. So like anyone that does it that way, I feel kindred with, and I'm not worried if someone says we're competitors, I will stand shoulder to shoulder and say, hey, we're all in this together. There are plenty that have abandoned that. Let's, if we want to shine a spotlight on those that are not, let's shine a spotlight there and say, come on, let's get back to, you know, this, even making hamburgers, like you mentioned Burger King, but making hamburgers now when... Shake Shack comes along, or Hugh Babies here in Nashville, right? They come along and they take, yep. you know, they take they they take meat and they grind it and they hand pat it and take real potatoes and they hand cut the fries, and, and we call that trendy and cool. It's just real. It's real food, and it's how Wendy's and, and McDonald's used and Burger King all used to do it. Yep. And then we get away from it over time for a lot of reasons. So I think just returning to the fundamentals of doing things the real way, real food movement is really key. Um, one thing I just want to mention too is that I'm so I'm, I'm real passionate about the farmers runner food. I'm also really passionate about uh, we talk about our staff, and you know I recognize that yeah we can make a huge impact in our communities by the people we serve. The other thing I love about the restaurant business is that you can make a huge impact on the people that you hire. You hire people that come for a job. Yep. You can sometimes offer them to stay for a career. In our world, like I mentioned, even give them a chance to own their own business, and so that's a path. I'm passionate about. And right now it's a challenging, everyone says it, it's almost cliche now, like, oh, the unemployment's really low and it's a really high, you know, difficult hiring market. It's true, but that should inspire us to look with fresh eyes on who are the people that are would love to be employed and would love to come work and stay because they want to be part of a family. And what we're finding is there's another amazing opportunity, something else to give a damn about, which is look to the veterans that are coming back and not just need to reacclimate into life they need um, an ally and an employer. They need someone to give them a job and to stand by them as they reacclimate. So hiring veterans is something. We just hired a new director of, um, of recruitment and a recruitment specialist, and she's real passionate about hiring veterans. And mm-hmm. so that's something we're leaning into. I already mentioned special needs. These are biggest, hardest people who are looking for a job, but most people focus on their disabilities instead of their abilities. Mm-hmm. And something I've become passionate about recently is refugees and immigrants, first-generation Americans. Our our restaurants are filled with people that speak different languages yep. and different colored skins. And we collectively create these families of hardworking people that have worked together for a long time. When I look at some of the opportunities in our country right now is that people come here that are, when they're first to America, whether they're a refugee, they're fleeing something um, where they had to leave their home versus someone coming who's an immigrant who is leaving a situation for a better opportunity. In either case, welcoming them in, 
letting them know that we have a job for them at Tzatziki's and because we really see the value in diversity. We see, um, and, and most of our kitchens, we're, we're speaking Spanish more than we're speaking English anyway. Um, and just realize it. that there's an amazing opportunity for these people that bring the values we say are some of the most important, quote unquote, American values. These are values these people are bringing with them, um, hardworking, family uh, loving, and want to be part of a fabric of something. And so at Tzatziki's, we, we, we are that and we offer that. And so we see this opportunity for sometimes the people that get overlooked are exactly the people you're looking for, exactly the people that sort of help you live out your best self. We talked about when you and I hung out last time about how so many of these people end up being also, they've lost so much. Oh. And they come from places where they had to work five, ten, hundred, I don't know, a lot harder than we did maybe for the same right. things, right? And so they end up, they just show up other employees, right, in terms of their commitment and their dedication. And that's a beautiful thing that, again, sometimes gets overlooked in the name of, oh, they're different. I can't understand them. You know, all the just stupid things that we say, Some, hopefully not we, you and me, but like that, that society says about these people. They turn out to be just the most beautiful, hardworking, amazing people that really, really, really want to be part of the team, really get in there and show a kind of a deeper level of commitment to uh, the overall goal. Uh, and I've worked very closely with all the different kinds of people that you have talked about, right? And uh, especially refugees here in Nashville. Uh, I've worked a lot with refugee community here in Nashville. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people, just amazing people. So I love that you're focused on yeah, I mean, simply put, it's it's con it's conscious capitalism. It's also people over profit, like truly. I mean, that's also a, kind of a sexy buzzword that people, t the kind of phrase that people talk about. But this is truly evidence of people over profit, right? I know you guys have a like a meal before the restaurant opens every day, so everybody that's working that day kind of eats together before the store opens up. Is that correct? Yeah. So yeah, there's there's two different amazing meals that happen. One is yeah, if you if you hustle and work hard and you get your prep done by like. 15 minutes before we open at 11, there's time then where they'll they'll create a, a breakfast together and everyone contributes and everyone dines together and then quickly back to the line in time to open the door at 11. It's amazing. Could you work hard? Yeah. Uh, yeah, how many, three, four hours? Yeah, prepping your station all, all morning and getting ready for the day. The other thing that happens in a lot of our markets we're really excited to see is just on like typically a Saturday, Saturday morning, there'll be a family meal. And, and someone will, will open up the restaurant before before hours. And it's not just the staff, but now bring your spouses, bring your kids. Wow. And there's this broader community of, if you spend all day in the kitchen, let's cook together. Let's dine together. Let's And get to know each other. The amount of time we spend working together um, and see, see the, you know, you've heard the names of the kids. Let's see the kids and hear their stories um, and see their smiling face. But yeah, I mean, I love what you said a minute ago about, you know, these things we, you know, in an interview, you're looking for, you're, you're hoping you hired the right person. I mean, come on, for that matter, the things we hope we ourselves experience in our own work, we want to be grateful. We want to work that puts a smile on our face and hopefully yep. puts a smile on someone else's face. And you 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 want to be able to show up and work hard and there to be something that's it's worthwhile. Your 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 effort is making a difference. And so when someone comes in and they have a smile on their face and they are grateful in their bones because they just spent the last 13 years in a tent and where they were fleeing from their home that they, they've lost now. And their alternative is to come work a construction job or moving raw chicken. And I'm grateful to all those companies that offer anybody yep. a job. Yeah, totally. Um, but but sometimes, many times these people are coming from professional backgrounds. And for us to give them a chance to sort of move into, into a management position or again, an ownership position, even that pathway is amazing. So I, I look and I say, man, 
we have so much to learn and we are we are bettered by uh, these individuals that again sometimes get left out because they bring so much gratitude and hard work and all the things we really are saying we're looking for it reminds us to be our best self so i'm always inspired by them what's the big dream man like what's the big dream for you what do you i, I know you're very excited about the seekies right now your yeah. work with the seekies but like what like remove all the inhibitors and all the doubts that you may have about who you are in your life like what do you want to happen as a ceo as a father husband damn giver all of that stuff yeah boy that's a good question um yeah i'm glad you i'll, I'll start where you ended so right right now i'm you know married be 20 years next year and Congrats. with three kids my oldest one is about to turn 16 my oldest son driving 16 and then my middle son is about to turn 13 and my daughter is about to turn 10. And being a father is, uh, it's amazing to be on the other side of the father, son or father, child relationship, growing up in a broken home and with a broken relationship with my own dad and so redemptive to be able to do that. So beautiful. my my first priority is how do I um, keep investing in and keep trying in, uh, in a, maintaining a marriage that's thriving? And you, know, and you got to make space for the ups and the downs and uh, the the mountaintops that are romantic and exciting and then the really hard seasons and just it all belongs and be patient through that and then with my kids maintaining a relationship where it goes from like you're you're the shepherd and the director of the play and then now it's a sort of transitioning in a place where you have to back off and be um you know a spectator and someone that cheers and is safe but now they get you know life gets to start teaching them lessons and our turn of teaching them lessons starts to to end and sort of letting that sort of dance, that choreography sort of happen um, and sort of changing roles when I just figured out how to do this is a real challenge right now with, as you know, my kids become teenagers. Sure. Uh, so my wife and I staying in solidarity, that takes a lot of headspace, a lot of heart space. That's my biggest, that's my biggest sort of vocation, the, the heartbeat of things. And then I think by proxy, like, and I love what you're doing with, uh, with Give a Damn because being a dad, and being married, that means uh, I live in a community. That means I have a neighbor to my right, yep. my left, yep. across and behind. So neighbor love and paying attention. And by proxy, even just that, I'm now a citizen. I'm a part of a community, even if it's just the four or five of us. But my kids go to schools and just paying attention to what's going on in their schools. And there's diversity and there's problems and there's needs and just showing up in their schools in smaller, big ways. And my wife does an amazing job. And we're both able to volunteer in different ways. Um, and so those concentric circles that you get to build, that going from there to involved in a nonprofit that uh, helps kids in Guatemala City and taking my kids now on trips there so they can see the contrast of the world they live in versus some other kid's world and develop empathy and, and try to pass on some of these things that really my mom passed on to me. And um, that becomes you know a big priority with life. And so doing that and then trying to extend some of that into my work. And like I said, I am passionate, not just that we're in the restaurant business and yeah, we're, we are beating the industry trends with traffic's up and sales up and, and our initiatives are working. But the bigger initiative is I get to bring my heart into the farmers behind our food, that people side, and also offering jobs to uh, those that get left out. Um, those those elements of living out my heart and, and keeping it being a people-centered sort of priority. So I think from here where that goes, you know, I'm curious too, because my life has been this series of stepping sure, stones. Yeah. It's been wild. Of chasing um, just that, chasing how do I keep my heart open and alive? Um, how do I make life about people first? And how do I keep investing in adding value? 
And I'm really excited because I see a good horizon. We just, you know, kicking off this five-year plan with Tzatziki's and I see great opportunity in front of us. Um, I thought about, you know, someday down the road going in, going to teach. Um, I love the opportunity that someone's, when their mind and heart is open to be inspired and be challenged, that feels attractive to me someday if I, I have the that. opportunity to go, to go teach. But, you know, the world is um, a big place. There's a lot of reasons to give a damn. And so I think I'll Indeed. keep my eyes open and my heart open and just see where I can add value. I love that because it, there's a plan there, but the plan is to be open. The plan is to take it a day at a time. Yeah. Um, that's really all we can do. I mean, I've got dreams and ambitions and aspirations. And before we turned, you know, before we started recording, I was telling you about how the last few weeks have been just turning everything upside down for me, you yeah. know, because different things that are happening. I got to look, I got to listen to what life is throwing at me and decipher from there. And if I was, if I'm too stuck to my plan, yep. then I'm like, ah, that's not, it's not worth it. It's, it doesn't fit in the plan. It's alchemy, right? Yep. Like this, this idea of, can we trust as we go off and we have dreams and it's good to, because that means you're paying attention to how am I wired and what am I passionate about? And then ask, what does the world need? But this bigger narrative of like over time, can I trust there's a benevolent plot and there's I really I can't screw this up too bad. I can yeah. I just as long as I keep right. moving forward yep. and I keep my heart open and I keep responding to what's in front of me, um, go on that journey. Yeah. And it's and it's bumpy sometimes and there's right turns and left turns. Um, don't obsess about the wrong turns. Just keep moving forward. And for me that is that has worked and it's been a pretty pretty fun ride so far. In the year 2099, <laughs> you're going to die. Yes. I actually don't know when you're going to die, but I'm giving you plenty of time. That'll put you at like, what, 120? More bulletproof yeah. coffee. That yeah, will yeah, there you go. It, yeah. So a long time from now, hopefully, right. yeah. I, I hope, uh, you're going to die, um, as we all will and must. And for some odd reason, I'm still around, and I get to give your eulogy. So I'm there in front of everybody that loves and appreciates you, family, friends, uh, all the people that you've served and loved throughout your life, and they're all waiting on me to give your eulogy. Um, we're all there to mourn and celebrate your life. In a few sentences, what am I saying on that day? Hmm. I hope that you'll have great reason to say that Dan celebrated everybody's moments. And truly cared about the people around him and was paying attention to their lowest moments and would suffer with them, mm. uh, with them and their highest moments, the first to open a bottle of champagne and raise a cheers. Um, that Dan went on a life journey, but he did it with all the people around him and um, again, paid attention to the joy in the journey, the, the chalice of life that is both sorrow and joy and could hold both and celebrated both. I love that. That'd be a beautiful life and legacy, man. I hope you get all that and more. Thanks. This has been super fun. Uh, thank you for joining me. Dan Simpson, the father, husband, entrepreneur, uh, Tzatziki's franchisee turned CEO, and whatever else is in your future. Um, keep giving a damn. Uh, we're excited to keep following your story, keep in touch. And again, thanks for joining me and for sharing so much of your life and vision for life uh, with us today. It's been great, man. Now, I know y'all are Googling the Tzatziki's website right now to see if you have one near you so you can go grab some amazing food. 
I've eaten there several times in the last few weeks. It's amazing. And if you don't have one nearby, well, consider moving. Nah, don't do that. Maybe there will be one near you soon enough because again, they are growing like crazy. I hope you're encouraged by Dan's life, his experiences, his work, and the ways he and his company are giving a damn. If you have any questions or thoughts from this conversation or about this conversation, I'm always available to chat on social media at Nick LaPara or at Let's Give a Damn or shoot me an email always hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can find links and more information about Dan Simpson, Tzatziki's, and all things Let's Give a Damn by going to letsgiveadam.com. If you love what we're doing, friends, please tell a friend. Leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or consider giving us a few dollars each month to support the production of this show by going to patreon.com slash letsgiveadam right now. Once again, thanks to the Russell in Nashville, Tennessee for letting us use their studio to record this conversation. This podcast episode was created by Chad Snavely and yours truly. The music is by our friend and podcast guest alum, Propaganda. Until next week, love y'all. Peace. Peace.